previously on Blockbuster. Do you have a director in mind? It's got to be me or it won't be done right. Oh, is that someone at the door? It's open. Is someone calling the police? Who are you? <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry to have startled you. We'll, have, we'll, of course, pay for the door. Mr. Cameron. Arnold. Whoever you get to be the Terminator, you need to be trained that way. Arnold, why don't you play Terminator? It's uh, an option in Arnold's contract. Are you fucking kidding me? So we delay filming. I'm Matt Schrader, and Blockbuster starts now. This is Blockbuster. The story of James Cameron. Episode 5. Monday, March 19th, 1984, Los Angeles. After more than a year waiting for Arnold Schwarzenegger to become available, filming on The Terminator is finally getting underway. It was the start of a 42-day sprint for director James Cameron and producer Gail Ann Hurd. How are you feeling, Jim? Oh, this is incredible. It's, it's sort of magic. You know, all these things we dreamed up and put on a page, and, and now they're real. Everyone here believes in it, too. That wasn't entirely true. Some of the crew was just here for a paycheck, but James had every intention of inspiring them with his vision for the story. Los Angeles proved the perfect setting. It was dirty, polluted, but still decadent. A city unknowingly on the precipice of a war against the machines. It's going to be great. I sure hope so. There was doubt. Arnold was still practicing his gun handling, trying to get all the motions to be automatic, like his character. And lead actress Linda Hamilton had injured her leg and couldn't run naturally, so the entire shooting schedule was now getting reshuffled, adding new chaos into the mix for James. Guys, we need more smoke. Uh, bring out the acid. Hey, watch the face. Only on the jacket. James was filming mostly at night for dramatic effect, which would mess with his cast and crew's sleep schedules and mean they'd constantly be rushing shots before the 7 a.m. sunrise. This was the first action sequence of the film, a chase. Action. The Terminator landing on the hood of a car, punching through the windshield as the two protagonists drive in reverse to try to fling him off. Cut. That's good, that's good. Let's do it again. While Arnold had a stunt double, he insisted on doing many of the stunts himself. Uh, can we get a little more smoke, please? We're losing the night. Get more smoke! Hurry! There was a lot to coordinate, and James was already becoming demanding of his crew. He was trying to find a balance so he wouldn't be perceived as a jerk, but it wasn't working. That's it for tonight. Thanks, everyone. Oh, God damn it. I hope we got the shot. James felt the pressure, all six million dollars of it not only executing his first feature film, but making it good enough to convince the folks at 20th Century Fox to let him direct the sequel to Ridley Scott's Alien. James reviewed the footage the next day in the editing bay. Here, the world he'd created looked completely different. For the first time, James realized he was making a real movie.
James Cameron reminded Arnold of John Milius, the director of Conan, who seemed to know everything about movie making. Hey, why is the camera over there? What do you mean? We storyboarded this. It's supposed to be over here. Look. <laughs> On set, people started to joke about James' evil alter ego. Midge. M-I-J. Jim in reverse. <sighs> Daniel, damn it. Give me that spotlight. Okay, we got it, we got it. It was clear Jim had a vision, and fortunately, most of his crew understood his panic, but he was running out of time to get it right. He was a first-time filmmaker figuring out how to work with a film crew and real Hollywood actors. And the amazing thing his crew realized and respected was when Midge showed up on set and showed you how to do your own job, he was actually really good at it. He'd thought out every detail. Places, everyone. Jim. Arnold. What's up? Arnold walked over with glue and prosthetic parts still on his face. This line, you know, it's feminine when I say the aisle. Huh? When I leave the police station, I'll, I'll be back. I'll, I'll, I'll. James was sleep deprived and he stared straight back at Arnold. It doesn't feel rugged to me. He should say, I will be back. James slid his jaw to the side, as if trying to hold in his irritation to Arnold's question. Uh... It should be more like a machine. I will be back. Like menacing. Look, just trust me, okay? But it sounds really weird in my German accent. Let's stick with Al. I cannot pronounce, you know, I'll, I'll. I don't tell you how to act. Don't tell me how to write. Okay? Okay. Let's just say it ten different ways, and one will work, okay? Okay. I'll be back. I'll be back. I'll be back. I'll be back. It was the only time Arnold and James would disagree during filming. I'll be back. They'd become good friends in their off time, even riding motorcycles together on weekends. And as filming wrapped in summer 1984, just before the Olympics in Los Angeles, they still needed some pickup shots, and James and Arnold decided to go shoot some on their own. You don't need a microphone? No, just the camera. Just don't move your lips. They were on a neighborhood street in Los Angeles. They'd driven the station wagon from the film and parked it near some homes. Uh-oh. Do, do, do you hear a siren? Yeah. I think it's gone. Uh, phew. Okay, we don't have a permit to film here, so... Are we supposed to have a permit? Uh... <laughs> nope. Why not? No money left. But what if the police come? Well, we apologize. Tell them it's a student film. Jim, I'm a movie star. What if they recognize me? <sighs> no crew, no wardrobe, no permit. No need, baby. <laughs> we'll do it in one take. James hoisted a camera onto his shoulder and put his eye up to the viewfinder. Okay, we actually only have one station wagon here, so we, we gotta do it in one take. Okay. You got your gloves? Oh, yeah. Okay, so you go to that corner over there, and then I'll tilt the camera at you and give you the signal to, to walk forward to the station wagon and punch out the window, okay? Punch it out? Yeah. Uh, Jim, is that real grass, or is it breakaway? Uh, just, just give it your best jab. Okay. 
All right, quickly, quickly before the police come. And action. Good, good, and stop. Gonna tilt the camera up and look left and right. Now walk over and punch through the glass. And cut. Beautiful, beautiful. This, this worked. Okay, let's uh, brush off the glass and, and, and get out of here. Executives at Orion Pictures were nervous. James had created something new and different. But that was a scary thing in Hollywood, especially to an independent studio. They refused to hold screenings for critics, fearing bad reviews would doom the film. This frustrated James especially because the few critics who wrote about the film praised it. When The Terminator came out, it would make $4 million at the box office opening weekend. But Orion wasn't confident that success would last, and they stopped promoting the film. Mike. Hey, Gil. I have Jim on the line, too. Mike, we need a boost. This thing is doing so well, and, it, and it's going to die if we don't give it another couple weeks promotion. Well, Orion feels this is more of a word-of-mouth film, not one for marketing. Bullshit. Look what marketing did for opening weekend. We, we, we need more traction. Can we do some TV spots? There must be something we can do. How about something in the trades? Gale was trying to give James as much momentum as possible for his next film and knew a full-page ad in Variety would do that, but it would cost $5,000. Ryan doesn't feel it's a good business investment. I'm sorry. I'll run this by them again, but I don't think there's anything more we can do. Orion wasn't sure it was worth spending any money on marketing, something that would frustrate James and jeopardize his chances to direct his sequel to Alien. The Terminator would disappear from cinemas fast in fall 1984, never to gain the kind of audience James had expected. His first movie seemed like a dud, a failure, and it certainly didn't impress his father. After some weeks, James finally got confirmation from Fox he would direct his Alien sequel, but they'd never give him a contract. If things went south, they could fire him at any time. James was more determined than ever and pushed Fox to agree to terms with lead actress Sigourney Weaver from the original before he and Gail would leave for vacation and escape to Hawaii together. April 1985. James and Gail are in Maui, a vacation some thought, but the reality was much more. During their trip, they'd made plans to marry in a beachside ceremony, then spend another couple weeks on their honeymoon here, relaxing, snorkeling, and climbing volcanoes. But their trip turned stressful, the morning of the wedding. Jim. What? It's bad luck on the day Jim, of the... don't give me that traditional crap. I'm serious. Okay, okay. Whoa. What happened? Nothing happened, Jim. Ah, it's us. I think we need to think this through. What, what do you mean? The, the wedding? Yes, the wedding. Oh. It's like today's supposed to be this huge moment in our lives. It, it doesn't feel... What? I don't know. Important enough? I, I thought this was your idea. I don't need everything to be all traditional. Right. I mean, it's 1985. This just... This just isn't what I envisioned. Well, it's not about that. It's, it's about us. It's doing what works for us. James thought of his marriage to Gail like a partnership. In many ways, it mirrored their $1 contract on the Terminator to stick with each other no matter what. 
James had fought for Gale to produce aliens now as well, even though Fox was nervous about the idea. Increasingly, their dating was being seen as a conflict of interest. It, it feels like it's, it's happening. Fast? Too fast. What are people going to think? Listen, if we go through with this, it's official. You know, it's not just a fling, you know. It means we're serious together. You know, people will see that. There are lots of married couples in Hollywood. Yeah, I know that. It's not that. I just want to be doing this for the right reason. Are, are we doing it for the right reason? Of course. <sighs> Think about how much better we are together than apart. We're, we're a team. Oh, we are an amazing team. Okay, then. Okay. Later that day, on a secluded stretch of beach in Hawaii, James and Gail exchanged their vows. Do you, James Francis Cameron, take this woman to be your lawfully wedded wife? I do. And do you, Gail Ann Hurd, take this man to be your lawfully wedded husband? I do. By the power vested in me, by the state of Hawaii, I now pronounce you husband and wife. You may kiss the bride. As the sun set, his bride in his arms, James took in the beauty around him. He was happy. For a brief moment in a tumultuous few years of inventing and reinventing himself, he'd found someone who believed in him. For a moment, he felt like he belonged. After returning from their honeymoon, James and Gail were hungry to get back to work on the biggest project of their lives and their first big studio film, Aliens. Sigourney Weaver was still waiting on Fox to officially hire her for the film. James was annoyed this was still dragging on, but he devised a plan. Hello, ICN, Lou Pitt's office. Hi there, it's Jim Cameron. Can you get me Lou? Oh, uh, Jim Cameron. Uh, yeah, right away. Lou Pitt was Arnold Schwarzenegger's agent, and someone James knew was extraordinarily well-connected. James, great to hear from you, buddy. To what do I owe the pleasure? Hey, Lou, so listen, Sigourney Weaver's agent is over there at ACM, right? Yeah. Well, Fox is dragging its feet, making her an offer for the Alien sequel. I gotta tell you, I, I, I don't think it's meant to be. Whoa, whoa, may, maybe... So I'm, I'm taking Ripley out of the story. James had no intention of rewriting the script, but he knew the only people who can pull one over on the studios are Hollywood power agents. The studios couldn't afford to piss off their entire roster of clients. I just wanted to let you know, as a professional courtesy, you know, Jim. I, I don't want any hard feelings, but I'm, I'm writing her part out of the script. Jim, just hold on. Let me pull some strings. No, too late. I'm going to start my rewrites today. It'll be completely separate from Ridley's original. Jim. I'll fix this. You have my word. Hey, it's Lou at ICM. We need to talk about Sigourney. Jim says he's going to write her out, so we need a deal now. Fox loved James' script and panicked that he now wanted to rewrite it. We need this closed today. You're going to lose this movie. That's 30 times the amount of the original. She's a leading lady now, and you know it. Jim is insisting or he'll rewrite. No, no. Okay. We'll talk. Sigourney had only been paid about 35 grand on the original Alien, but after starring in Ghostbusters the year before, she felt she deserved more, and James did too. Sigourney? Yes? 
Did they respond? We have a deal. <laughs> How much did they talk us down? They took the deal. The full amount. The full amount? A million flat. It'll be in the trades tomorrow. Congratulations. Hey, it's Jim. Jim, it's Sigourney. Ah. I just heard the news. <laughs> Congratulations. Excited to get you out there. And Jim. Yeah? Thank you. There was one other call James had to make early on. Aliens would have a big budget, and James knew that meant it had to have great music. There was one composer who would be perfect, his old friend Jamie, who now, for professional reasons, went by the name of James Horner. Hello? Jamie. Yes? Who's this? It's Jim Cameron, man. How are you? Oh, Jim. Oh, it's great to hear from you. How long has it been? <laughs> Too long. I think painting sets last time we spoke. <laughs> I think you're right. Congratulations on the Terminator. Splendid. It's a start. Listen, I'm calling because I'm starting a film in a few weeks, a sequel to Ridley Scott's Alien. Oh, that's fantastic, Jim. I hope it's not for Roger Corman. <laughs> no, uh, but I remember your music from Battle Beyond the Stars. Oh, God. No, it's, it's great. It just transcended the movie. Roger said it made the movie seem like it was three times bigger budget. Knowing his budgets, I'm not sure if that's praise or insult. <laughs> oh, high praise. Uh, trust me. We, we, we said Jamie's music is just so ambitious. It feels much bigger, like a four, five, six, six million dollar movie. We, we both loved it. Huh. I didn't know that. Well, which, which leads me to this. Gail and I were just talking about how we'd really love for you to do the music for this Alien sequel. What about Jerry? Who's Jerry? Jerry Goldsmith, the composer of the original. Oh, well, well I, I sort of want this to feel like it stands alone, you know? I, I, it's a separate story, same lead character, but needs to be, you know, less horror and more thriller, you know? <laughs> yes. We're shooting in London, so... Can we record there? In London? Yes, I have friends there. I studied music there as a kid, which is why I still have this funny accent. Oh, really? Yes, yes. But I always wanted to work with the London Symphony Orchestra since they're doing films now. Like Star Wars? Yes. Well, I don't see why not. James had always been impressed by Jamie's ambition and was eager to work with him. How long would I have to write the music? How long do you need? Well, 90 minutes of music, six, seven weeks should be enough. Perfect. Excited to get going on this. As am I. Thanks for considering me, Jim. Of course, of course. I'll have a guy send over everything you need. Fox would give Aliens a $17 million budget. They would start filming in London in September 1985 with the same Union film crews that had worked with Ridley Scott before and the same problems that had nearly derailed another American director years earlier, George Lucas. Joining Sigourney Weaver would be Michael Bean from Terminator and Lance Henriksen from Piranha 2. And in his first headline role, James' friend from the Roger Corman art department, Bill Paxton. They were excited to begin filming. But to the crew in London, Aliens looked very different. A money-hungry American film studio chasing an English director's success. Fox was handing them over to a cocky 30-year-old American director married to his producer. They weren't going to make it easy. Stay tuned for a preview of the next episode of Blockbuster 
and a short conversation about this episode. Hey, I'm Ross Marquand. I play the role of James Cameron in Blockbuster. Thanks so much for listening, and be sure to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks. On the next episode of Blockbuster... And cut. Cut. Back to one. James breaks action movie norms with his female-led thriller. Sigourney, maybe a little more boss. I can do that. Oh, what the fuck? As his production in London spirals out of control. I will not be spoken to like other... You're fired. I want you out. God damn it. Ah. All right. And his relationship with Gail is pushed to the extreme. I think we should get a divorce. What? That's coming up on episode six of Blockbuster, the story of James Cameron. I'm series creator Matt Schrader. Hey, I'm the sound designer Peter Bavitz. I'm Fernando Arroyo Lascurain, and I'm the composer. And I'm producer Elena Bavitz. And this is our creator chat about episode five. You just heard from Blockbuster, the story of James Cameron. We're at the midway point of this series, this 10 episode run. And uh, a lot happens in this episode. It's the start of Terminator. Uh, James and Arnold get in a fight over I'll Be Back. And then James and Arnold become buddies and uh, ride motorcycles and um, break break the window of a station wagon. And Elena, my favorite scene from this episode, James and Arnold going off to film without a permit in Los Angeles. We know how dangerous this is. It is something you just don't do as a producer. (laughs) So um, probably that's why they did not have a producer with them and they just went completely guerrilla filmmaking in that moment. So when Arnold is hearing sirens, police sirens, that is really not a good thing. It is not it is not a good thing. It was not something you generally do and especially nowadays this is a little bit of an unthinkable situation especially on a big film like that. Mm. You know, sometimes you gotta do what you gotta do to finish the story so in his case they've run out of money he could not bring out a big crew to do this pickup shot which would you know require stunt coordination which would require all of your camera operators and focus pullers and first and second ACs and everything you know the the as i say like the film crew comes out as a whole circus so he couldn't bring yep. the whole circus over there so he just decided to like run and gun it and it ultimately looks pretty much the same if you do it right and uh and you can make the shot work you can see the scene in the final uh cut of the film and arnold's in his leather jacket and it starts with a close-up on his face his (laughs) eyes scanning to either side and then walking up and breaking the glass of this station wagon and 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 that was really that was really arnold that wasn't wasn't a stunt double yeah but can i can i point out there was no sound on set so everything you hear sound did the magic there i'll just point out Ah. Sound did the magic. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> Peter, one thing we've been wanting to do for much of this season is build in a cold open, which is, for those who don't know, it's the scene before the main title music comes in. And I've always felt like that's a strong, a stronger way to start a story, getting into it right away, letting the scene itself set up the rest of the story. But this is the one episode in our 10-episode run here that we didn't do that. Yeah. I mean, not only do we do we do it in almost every episode, we do it to the whole series, right? Because we have the submarine sequence, which is a cold open to the whole series. Right. And this one, you know, it it's like I literally have it on my wall in the studio, though, the breakdown of each episode scene by scene as a, as a big board, basically, on my cork board. And it didn't feel right. You know, it just has to feel right structurally. It has to fit in 
the in the story that you're telling within that episode and it just didn't like we tried and we pulled it out we're like this doesn't make sense let's not force it you know when you're on set with the terminator you got to let it be its own thing it's there's enough happening yep. on that and of course james gets married in this episode that's something that will lead into the next episode as well but when they return from their honeymoon we have james again playing the politics a little bit telling mm. the agents i'm gonna write sigourney weaver's character out um this deal isn't getting done and this is all a ploy to try to get the agents and 20th Century Fox to finally close the deal with Sigourney. And Fernando and Peter, the sound design montage here is amazing with the, the, the clicking the of phones music tango, turning into the music. Mean. It is. It's the back and forth. It's it's uh, <laughs> music and sound working in unison. And uh, and it's greater than the sum of their parts. No, we did keep it secret from you for a while. <laughs> this was also Peter's, you know, Peter's kind of idea of starting with this, you know, dance between sound design and music. And he was the one that called me and said, don't tell Matt about this. <laughs> you need to show him the final product. So when we were having our reviews of the episode, you constantly kept right. asking about... Don't we have music there, Fernando? And I said, well, we'll, 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 we'll wait for that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> right. It works so well with, with the, uh, the, the clicking and the ringing of all the phones and then the music just, it picks up the tempo. It just, you're right. It, it's a dance there. And it's, uh, it, it really, really, I loved it. it it's, it's really a game. You know, the way we mm -hmm. approached it is just by, like, from, from my point of view, I was like, he's just playing the game. This town is full of these sharks who are just trying to make these deals left and right. And he's like, he's been doing it long enough. He understands the drill. He's like, now's mm -hmm. his, and he knows what to do. And, and you know, you get a beat in there and he's just playing. You know, he's just playing. They're playing. He's playing. And it's a fun little game that he's he's having. And he has a goal. He knows what's going to happen. And he gets it. It's a, it's a fun, cute little montage that we made there. Definitely. This was one of probably one of my favorite cues to write for the entire season. And to get this sort of mischievous, uh, you know, character and dance he's really playing on all of these big mm -hmm. wigs in Hollywood. It was fantastic. Now, Fernando, I want to ask you, our episode ends and James needs one final piece for Aliens as he's, he's getting all this, you know, his crew, his cast and crew together. He needs a composer and he has an idea. This Jamie Horner guy, I remember him from my Roger Corman days. This is the sort of the, the, the start of them working together. Mm -hmm. We have hinted a little bit at the relationship developing in episode two, I think, uh, where we introduce mm -hmm. James's, James Horner's theme, just a hint of it. And here is really where we go for it and really see that relationship develop. We also, you know, people adore the Aliens music so much. And mm -hmm. I wanted to start hinting a little bit at that music, but not, not again, not on the nose as we did with Terminator. And I came up basically with my own version of what I would have done. But what's interesting mm -hmm. about all of this is that uh, James Horner and I actually share a teacher in common and the only composition teacher he lists as his composition teacher, which is the fantastic Paul Chihara. Mm -hmm. who some people really need to get to know who he is. Great <laughs> composer. Yep. And kind of a guru of film music. And we talked often about James and, you know, his approach to composing. And many of those influences have transferred onto my view on film music. Mm -hmm. I, I definitely try to hint once we get into the films and also his theme itself into the films that they worked on together. Yep. 
that James Horner feeling because I think that relationship is one of those huge composer-director relationships that is worthwhile. I cannot wait for you to hear the next uh, few episodes. Uh, we'll be back next week to talk about episode six and uh, start the back end of uh, this season of Blockbuster. We hope you're enjoying our bonus interview series as well with the real people from this story. That returns next week as well with a new conversation about James' struggles on Aliens. Uh, but for now, for all of us here, Elena, Fernando, and Peter, I'm Matt Schrader. Thank you for listening, and uh, be sure to rate and review Blockbuster wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Blockbuster is written and narrated by me, Matt Schrader. Sound design by Peter Bavietz. Original music by Fernando Arroyo Lascarain. Produced by Elena Bavietz. Starring Ross Marquand. For more on Blockbuster, follow us on social media at BlockbusterPod or visit us online to support the creators at getblockbuster.com. Blockbuster is an original production of Epiclef Media.